Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. I'm going to uh, get into a two-week mini-series this week called PDF, okay? PDF. Um, I use an acronym on purpose because my day job is in tech, and we have way too many acronyms in my life. There are so many acronyms at the company I work for. They have an acropedia, which is an encyclopedia of acronyms that you can look up to try to figure out what someone's telling you because they all use these acronyms. It's weird, right? And so there's a whole bunch of uh, acronyms for that all of you are probably aware of and you may not even know it. Um, nicknames. So if you got any sports people in the house, MJ is? There we go, right? He's the best, not the other one, not LBJ. He's the lesser J. Yeah, LeBron James. Okay, so yeah, we're good on that. We're, we're good on these. Uh, companies, AT&T, right? What's that stand for? Is it Telegraph? Is that the other one? I don't even know. I was just... <clears throat> All right. Uh, the other one, Open AI. AI? There we go. I'm looking for the younger ones right here to, the, to the jump on the AI. See, I got you. I got you. Right? Medical terms. Medical terms. ACL? Yeah. A- ACL. There's ACL, the anterior crucial ligament or something. <laughs> right, right. We got ACLs, we got PCLs, we got MCLs, and then it's it, all these, and then they're also seeping into our language. LOL. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, gotcha. He's Mike. Mike. That's the one Mike knows. <clears throat> LOL. Uh, IKR. Anybody know that one? I know, right? There you go. I know, right? Uh, IMO. In my opinion, in my opinion. <laughs> M, uh, or, or the sarcastic one, I-M-H-O, in my humble opinion, right? <clears throat> um, and then the one that no one uses anymore, YOLO. There you go, YOLO ones. Acronyms everywhere. Now, if, if you didn't know any of those and you're looking around going, what just happened? Like with all these alphabet soup that I just launched out here from, from the front of y'all. Um, everybody knows what this one is, PDA. Yeah, yeah, Mike, man, that was the one he amened on right there, PDA. Yeah! <laughs> Renee's looking at him. <laughs> Public display of affection. So the message today, the title of this little mini-series we're going to do over these next two weeks is a spin-off of PDA. It's PDF, not a public display of affection, but it's the first line in your notes, public display of faith. Public display of faith, not printable, downloadable file, which PDF also is, <clears throat> but um, a public display of faith. Now, I want everybody who comes here or who lives for Christ in any measure to have a public display of your faith, but the holidays are the perfect time to do that. If you are someone who calls yourself a believer in Jesus, a Christian, a follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, and you are hiding your faith, so that you don't tick off people in society, you don't cause any dust-ups, um, you don't um, wrinkle anybody's you know, press or whatever you want to say. Um, if you're trying to do that to keep the peace and, and you're hiding your faith and it's not public, you either don't believe or you have a greater fear of the created ones than the one creator. And you might go, Matt, this message has lasted four minutes and you are already in my face, right, with all this stuff. Well, there's only 21 days left in this year. Let's don't coast through them. Let's be intentional and put put the gas down, not the brakes, and let's do something with these last three weeks. These, the, counting today, there's only three more public gatherings we have for 2024. There's a couple of smaller ones we have for women's and youth and young adults and stuff like that. There's only three more gatherings we have for the rest of this year. So let's don't cruise through them. Let's use the opportunity and really push the last end of the year to grow. <clears throat> so we're going to get into something today that many public 
uh, facing popular American Bible teachers have misconstrued for years. Now, um, I grew up in a denominational church, like many of you guys that are in this room, and you guys have heard some of the same stuff over the years that would I would consider, um, as I grew and understood the Bible and what it said and didn't just take somebody's word for it, I went and read it for myself, that we have discovered a whole bunch of foolishness that we used to believe. Everybody? Everybody? Yeah. You used to believe one thing, and then you went through this process of going, oh, that doesn't work, and then you read the Bible and went, oh, that's not what that says at all. Anybody had that moment? <clears throat> um, I want us to not be afraid to talk about the process of what we used to believe and what we believe now. I want us to be open about the process we went through. Oh, I used to believe this, but as I began to read and walk with God and to study his word, I realized that it means this. Make sense? Um, how many of you guys remember back to school? For some of us, it was a little bit longer than others of us. But if you go back to your school days, right, and they give you a math problem, they want you not just to look at the problem and write the answer. They want you to do what? Show your work. Show your work. We, why? Because they want to see what the process of how you're thinking. They want to see what you added and what you took away. What multiplied, what divided, what did you deal with first? Which problem did you handle first? What, did you deal with the stuff in the parentheses or the stuff right next to the parentheses? Did you add before you should have multiplied? All of that, they want to see your train of thought of how you got to that conclusion. We need to be people, next on your notes, who are willing to show our work. <clears throat> we need to not just give answers to the questions that people have. We need to tell them, look, I made a mistake in this in my life, and this is, the, this is what I added, this is what I took away, this is what I dealt with first, I went out of order, I should have done this first, and this is how I got to where the belief that I have is now. We have to be people who are willing to look back at ourselves and admit that we were wrong now. My wife has already put me on blast here this morning about the Christmas decor. But if you ask her another thing, she will gladly tell you that especially early in our marriage, I was a person who hated being wrong. Hated it. I know none of you guys have that problem. It's only me. But it's like vinegar. Coming out of my mouth was like I was wrong was like vinegar. I would look for like one little thing that I was right on. See, I was kind of right because I couldn't, I didn't want to be fully wrong. It took me a long time. Why? Why do we do that? Why do I do that? Because I felt like being wrong made me look stupid. I'm dumb. I'm incompetent. I didn't get it. I, I couldn't think through all the things that I needed to think through on my own. I was an idiot. I thought that admitting I was wrong was an admission of my stupidity. But admitting I was wrong, what I learned later, is actually a strength. It shows self-awareness. It shows maturity. It shows the ability to, to look at something and, and wrap your head around something outside of what you initially thought. You have an opportunity to show how you got from one place to another. Let's don't be those people who refuse to talk about the loss, the gain, what had to be taken out of us, what had to be put in the things that we incorrectly multiplied, that we amplified a teaching in us that, oh, that really wasn't right. And I was all about it for like 18 months. That's all I could talk about. Well, I was kind of wrong on that one. Then I felt dumb. No, no, talk about the process. <clears throat> because unless we do that, we're going to look wildly arrogant and disingenuous. We gotta be able to talk about the process. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about um, something specific that I guarantee you, walking in here, none of you um, would have thought, oh, that's not something Matt's going to talk about. Guarantee you. I actually almost made it the title of the message, but I changed it because I wanted to keep you in suspense a little bit longer, just for another few minutes. <clears throat> but we're going to talk about um, three chapters in 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote um, this letter to the church in Corinth. And we're going to talk about the end of chapter 12, all of chapter 13, and the beginning of chapter 14. We have to remember that these, the Bible was not written in chapter and verses. The chapter and verses were added a few hundred years ago. These things were written as one complete letter. 
So we divide them up so we can understand them and study them and take them in bite-sized chunks and reference, and that's been good. But people will often take just a verse and then manipulate that however they want to. We've got to read the whole thing. <clears throat> so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31, as I lead into the main point of this message, okay? So let's, let's start here. <clears throat> all of you, this is all of you, not the leaders of the church, not the pastor, not anybody, all of you. This letter was written to every believer, so this, everybody perks up here. All of you, together, are Christ's body, and each of you has a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are the apostles, second are the prophets, or the third are the teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that's best for all. So let's stop right here. Paul clearly identifies that it is important for every single one of us to identify our function, our role in the body of Christ. <clears throat> you are supposed to develop it. You are supposed to harvest it. You're supposed to be excellent in your role. You're supposed to take the raw materials that you have been given and develop that out and play the role in the body of Christ that you were designed to play. We have a lot of people who are, they, they look at the different giftings of people and they go, my gifting isn't that, so my gifting doesn't matter. I'm not the guy who speaks on Sundays. I'm not the one who teaches online. I'm not the one who speaks in groups of people. I'm not the one who leads. So I'm just going to let all those guys do it. I'll show up every once in a while. I'll show up, you know, once or twice a month, and then I'll just be here and y'all do your thing, and I'll just sit back here and clap. That is not what Paul said to do. This list that he gave here is not an, ex an all-extensive list. Evangelists aren't there. Workers aren't there. Generosity is not there. Givers aren't there. Workers aren't there. But he's saying these are some of the, the group. Get your mind right here. You have a job to play. And the only way you play that job is not keep it hidden, but to go public. You have to make it known what your gifting is, what you think your gifting is, what you're growing in, and what you're trying to develop. And then he says here at the end, you should be desiring the most helpful gifts. How do we determine which ones are the most helpful gifts? Next on your notes. The gifts that represent Christ well in the servants of others. <clears throat> the gifts that represent Christ well in the service of others. All of these gifts that you've been given and the role you play in the quote-unquote body of Christ is to represent Christ well and serve other people. First the people in the church, then the people in the world. You serve God, his people, and then the people in the world. Paul's clear about that. There's a lot of people who want to take their gift and get on a stage somewhere, which is I'm not against, but the reason that they pursue being publicly seen is so they get the oohs and the ahs from people and be like, that guy can speak, that girl can preach, that lady can sing. That, you see what I'm saying? They, they reason that they're pursuing the public, the, the, going public with their gift is not for the reason of serving other people, but serving themselves. We have a lot of people who've done this, you and I could sit here and probably start writing out a list, a list of 50 names right now. Don't do that. Don't be shouting out people's names. It's not what I'm about to do. But all of us are familiar with it, right? Somebody who is up there going crazy, you know, and, and trying to put their gift on display, not so they can serve other people and point them back to Christ, but so that people can go, bro, that's awesome. <clears throat> How do I know that? Because that was me for a long time. I wanted you to get close to Jesus, 
But what I really wanted was the pat on the back. Ain't nobody speak like you, dude. I've never heard anybody break that passage down like somebody like you. And I would walk away being like, I got the inside track. Do you think that that heart is what God would promote? <laughs> no. Do you think that he would go, yeah, you're the one that I want to keep putting in those places to teach other people? No. Why? Because you're supposed to be publicly displaying your faith as opposed to publicly displaying your gift. Your gift will require you to go public, but now he's dealing with the reason you go public, the reason that you have your gift. God did not tell you to find a flawless, God-honoring leader with a dynamic personality and do whatever they say. He said, all of you grow roots into him, bring the strength of that relationship to the, the gathering of the church and then use that gift and that strength and that courage and that empowering that the Spirit of God has given you to do that well and serve one another. The best gift is the one that represents Christ's will in the service of others. <clears throat> when we focus on um, trying to promote your gift Instead of promote your faith and the one who's given you the gift, what happens is we look, we make the body look distorted. How many ever watched the old cartoon Popeye? Right? Ever seen that? If you ever seen the drawing of Popeye, the biggest thing on Popeye was what? Forearms. The rest of him was like this, right? Looks like olive oil. Like he was just like skinny, like this thing. He had these big old, he looked disproportionate, Right? He kind of looked funny. When we tried to exemplify our gift as the most important thing above everybody else, we create a distorted view of what the body looks like. You do not have, you've not cornered the market on prophecy. You've not cornered the market on leadership. You've not cornered the market to where you are on teaching. That, that is the very most important thing. And it overrides everything else. All you did was work on your forearms. And when you go out into the world, what's happening? You're not representing Christ well because the body looks disfigured. Everybody's got a role and everybody has to play their role. <clears throat> now, Paul, here he is spending good time, energy, thought, paper, ink, laying out this whole idea that everybody should be playing their role. They should be um, functioning in their gifting. They should be pursuing the gifting, developing that gifting. They should be growing in it. He takes all this time to, to highlight that. And then the very last thing he says in chapter 12, you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Your gifts Figure that out. Play your role in the body. But before you get too focused on you, let me set the priority straight. Then he gets into 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody should know this probably as the love chapter. I've seen this used at wedding. I've used it at weddings myself <clears throat> because it identifies what love is. It's very impactful. But the context of what he's doing here is he's going, hey, you need to work on you. You need to highlight your gift. You need to make sure you're developing it. Grow in excellence. You need to make sure you're doing that. But there's a reason you're doing that. Let me tell you the reason. If I could speak in the languages of earth and of angels but didn't have others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See what you did? He's talking about the gift of tongues and interpretation. If you do that but don't have love, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, there's another one. If I could understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had faith, another one, that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. 
If I gave everything I had to the poor and sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So here he is saying, look, you can focus on all those gifts. I want you to play your role. But if you get really good at your gift and the driving motive is not the love of God and the love of other people, what you're doing is worthless. If you're not doing it out of love, there's no point. So after he corrects that, focus on this, but don't be so focused on you that you forget the foundation, the priority of love, then he describes what love is. Well, if I'm going to do this, Paul, if I'm going to serve other people and represent Christ well, and I'm going to do this from a heart posture of love, then what is love? Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Now he goes back to the gifts. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. Not is now, but in the future, it will become useless. But love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put put away childish things. Now we see things, excuse me, imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of those three is love. See what he did? The driving, motivating factor of you serving someone else, representing Christ well, working on that gift, developing it in excellence, the number one reason you do that is love. Next on your notes, every gift that is put on public display needs to be done from a foundation of love. Why do we teach? We love others so much that we want them to learn scripture so that their understanding and knowledge and relationship grows. It is done from a position of love. Why do we lead? We love others so much that we want them organized, galvanized, strategized, and deputized to go do what we are called to do. Why do we pray? Because we love others so much that we want God's best for them. Why do we serve? Because we love others so much that we want to remove the obstacles and create a clear path for them to do God's work or receive his word. Why do we pray for healing? Because we love others so much that we want them to experience the joy of health, the lack of pain, the gift of life, and give God the glory for his position. It doesn't matter what the gift is. The reason we did it is because I love God and people so much that then you fill in the blank. That love for him has to be the driving, motivating factor for everything that we do. The love for people to connect to the God that we love has to be the driving, motivating factor. If it's about you getting yours, your exposure, your time on the stage, your highlight, your spotlight, then it's worth nothing. Paul's words, not mine. If I'm doing something in love, it doesn't mean that I'm doing it from a feminine posture. This is a, a thing that our culture has been really good at destroying, especially when it comes to guys, right? So when guys think of, you know, I'm going to do something out of love, they think, oh, we have to talk about it and hold hands as we gallop through the meadow and the tulips, right? Because it's become all feminized, right? But that's not what he said. Love is patient and kind. If I'm doing something in love, I'm doing it with patience, kindness, and humility. So now, let's ask the question, do I serve with humility? Because if I'm doing, serving in humility, then I'm doing it from a posture of love. Do I teach with kindness? Or do I get really harsh when people don't understand what I'm saying and go, ah, you guys are just dumb. 
Because if not, I'm not doing it with love. Am I willing to repeat the thing that I have been teaching for so long because there's patience involved with it? Am I willing to continue serving someone who doesn't get it over and over and over again? Am I willing to still host people at our home who may reject the gospel over and over and over again? If I'm willing to do that with patience, then I'm doing it from a posture of love. We have to do what we have been tasked to do with the elements that God has designed us, um, has God created to represent his love. Do I lead with patience? Do I take the time to understand, to explain as a leader? Am I doing that? Because if not, then I'm not leading with love. I'm not using the gift he gave me to represent him well or serve other people. Because if I'm just doing the thing, it's worthless if it doesn't come from a posture of love. <clears throat> then he transitions into chapter 14. Remember, there's no chapters and verses, so he wrote this as one letter. Pay attention to what your function and role is in the body. Do it from a posture of love. Don't be doing it without love. Love is the primary thing. And then he keeps writing these words. 1 Corinthians 14.1 Let love be your highest goal. He reiterates it one last time. But you should also desire the special ability the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Now as someone who is uh, very skeptical of the weird part of Christianity that has become popularized over the last 10 or 15 years. This one, I sat back in my study and was like, oh, dang. But then I asked a question that everybody in here should be asking. Explain, please. Because does prophesy mean what we have been taught that it means. Because next on your notes, Paul is instructing all of us to prophesy. He is telling us, especially, you need to be focused on all these abilities, but you need to especially be desiring the ability to prophesy. <clears throat> so then I went, oh no. Because my first reaction to the word prophecy is someone who, uh, who I've seen Growing up in the South, you, sir, in the back, stand up. The third, car, wallet, the third credit card in your wallet is a visa, and it ends with 1219 or whatever. And people go, oh, my God. <clears throat> right? You had someone who was sick in your family, and they're going to be healed. Yes. Everybody's got somebody in their family who's sick. <clears throat> I was raised to think that the prophet was someone who was like a mystery messenger. Almost like psychic. Like a fortune teller. It's going to rain next Thursday. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> All of us. Like, yeah, please, God, we are asking for that, right? <clears throat> Talking about the prophet is predicting the future and he's got these, you know, ambiguous words from God that sound like these big grandiose things and nobody knows what they mean, but everyone applies it to themselves and then they walk out and nothing happens and it dissolves. That's how I was raised to think what a prophet was. So, and all of y'all, if you don't, if you're like, well, I don't know any prophets do that. Uh, every single one of you heard 19 people uh, three years ago prophesy that Trump was going to win the election. <clears throat> More than that, right? Like, like I, I just stopped counting. Yeah. All of you heard that. We've heard people who claim to be prophets and they're going to tell, oh, yes, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. So that makes me massively skeptical about people who are prophesying. Because I'm like, eh, so what do we do when you're wrong? So you're pretty... Because my reference is the prophet is someone who talks about the future. So I started listening, reading, watching, 
what prophets really are. Because if you and I are supposed to be one, uh, we better figure out what that means before we run around here and start making stuff up and telling people, God's going to use you, brother. Ta-da! So, did some digging. There's 17, next on your notes, 17 books of the Old Testament that are considered books of prophecy. <clears throat> there are five of them that are considered major prophets and 12 of them that are minor prophets. Depending on who you talk to, some people don't include Daniel in there, but a major prophet, if you heard this statement, a major prophet and minor prophet. Everybody, anybody heard that before? Major prophets and minor prophets? I thought it's because the major guys were more important and the lesser guys, the minor prophets were people who did, didn't say very much. The only distinction between the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament is the fact their books are longer and the minor prophets, their books are shorter. That's it. Isaiah's got 60-some chapters. Nahum has like three, right? Like, that's all it is. Doesn't mean that their function or their role was less important. It just means that the length of what was captured and what they said is shorter or longer. I'm not going to go through all 17 of these, but I found a really good summary of the, the, the major prophets. So I condensed it and kind of put it in our notes here. And I want you, I'm going to read these out loud and you can read along with me but, as, as, uh, as I go through them. But I want you to notice what the thread is between all the prophets. Because we have to adjust our thinking away from an Americanized view of what um, popular church culture thinks a prophet is versus what the Bible tells us a prophet is. <clears throat> so the book of Isaiah. As a prophet, Isaiah ministered from 740 to 681 B.C. in the southern kingdom of Israel, known as, it, as Judah, after the nation of Israel was divided under Rehoboam. The national leaders, okay, the national leaders of Judah, God's people, spent much of their efforts trying to appease and curry favor with their neighboring nations, Assyria and Egypt. Isaiah spent much of his book criticizing the leaders for relying on human help rather than rep repenting of their sin and turning back to God. The majority of his book was about future events. Telling you what the last four digits on your credit card and your wallet was. Performing signs and wonders. The majority of his book was criticizing God's people for relying on human help rather than repenting of their sin and turning back to God. The book of Jeremiah. Like Isaiah, Jeremiah served as a prophet for the southern kingdom of Judah. He ministered from 626 to 586 B.C. Much of Jeremiah's writings were urgent calls for the Israelites to repent of their sins and avoid the coming judgment. Sadly, he was largely ignored. Did Jeremiah tell you what day is going to rain next week? The majority of his time was telling people to repent of their sins and come back to, come back to God. Because judgment's coming if you don't. Book of Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah, is a series of five poems recorded after the destruction of Jerusalem. Thus, the major themes of the book involve expressions of grief and sorrow because Judah's spiritual decline and physical judgment. The book also contains a strong thread of hope, specifically the prophet's trust in God's promises of future goodness and mercy despite present troubles. I can tell you that if you repent in the future, God's goodness will be bestowed on you. Does that mean I can see the future? Or does that mean I know God's character? It doesn't mean that they didn't have moments like this. It doesn't mean they didn't have a moment of looking into the future. But the vast majority of those three books that we just mentioned are calling people to repentance. The book of Ezekiel. As a respected priest in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was taken captive by the Babylonians in 597 B.C., Ezekiel ministered as a prophet to the Jews exiled in Babylon. His writings identified the continued disobedience of Israel 
God's anger at his people's sin and the coming destruction of Jerusalem, judgment for the people of Judah, and the restoration of Jerusalem. Did he see things that were going to come in the future? Absolutely. But those things were what? God's coming judgment. Why, was, why were they being judged? Disobedience of Israel, his people were sinning, and he wanted them to know this is coming in the future, so you don't think there's just something bad that happened. This is me, God, telling you what's going to happen, and when it happens, you'll know that I'm the one that's having judgment on you. A little bit in the future, most of it was identifying you need to repent of your sin to avoid what's coming. The book of Daniel. <clears throat> like Ezekiel, Daniel was also taken captive in Babylon. In addition to serving as a prophet of God, Daniel was also an administrator, serving in the court of four different kings of Babylon. Daniel's writing are a combination of history and apocalyptic visions. Taken together, they reveal a God who is totally in control of history, including people and nations. Did he see some things in the future? Yes. Did he interpret some dreams? Absolutely. But his main role was what? Being an administrator, giving wisdom, understanding uh, what the times were, understanding God's character, and communicating it to the kings. Do you see the thread? Do you catch it? It's not the fact that you got a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. Or you can walk around and, and say, I had a dream about you last night. Although those things did happen, if I were to line out and draw here to here as all the content that the, that the prophets were giving, this little portion down here would be all of the future stuff. And the vast majority of what they dealt with is you have not repented of your sin. Come back to God. Do not... Do not um, Continue disobeying him. Live up to what he's called you to do. That is the role of the prophet. <clears throat> Most of them, I, I heard it put this way during my study. Most of them presented a message to others that said, why has your believing loyalty failed? Why has your believing loyalty failed? They don't speak or write things down very often that ask their audience to think about what's going to happen. They do a little, but very little. Most of it is like, look where you are right now and come back to God now. They spend most of their time asking people to think about their failure to believe and telling them to remain faithful to God. Next line in your notes. I didn't know this. This is very helpful to me. Biblical scholars repeatedly refer to Old Testament prophets as covenant enforcers. <clears throat> covenant enforcers. Not psychics, not future tellers, not dreamers, not people who have signs and wonders, although those things did accompany them from time to time. Covenant enforcers. Many times God raised up prophets to speak to the people who were apostatizing him. They were assigned the task to walk into a culture that once had loyalty to God but turned away from it, reminding them the truth about their creator. What does that sound like? America. Even the people who weren't Christians, they used to have some kind of respect for God's word or God or the church or a pastor or a minister or something. Now it's just open mockery of all of that. And all of us, not just me, all of you, all of us in this room are called to go into that culture and speak with a prophetic, a prophetic voice not calling out dreams and all the kind of stuff, but to say, hey, you once believed. Where is that covenant loyalty you used to have to God? Return to it. Because if not, things are going to keep spiraling out of control. You are the carrier of that message. The prophet didn't look at his revelations from God as showtime. 
Let me tell you what's going to happen 25 years in the future, a thousand years in the future, the end times. Nope. Most of the times he was terrified when that happened. Next on your notes, a prophet was God's mouthpiece similar to a spokesperson. <clears throat> a prophet was God's mouthpiece similar to a spokesperson. A, a prophet remained loyal to the true God and called upon others to do the same. This is the thing that Paul is telling all of us we need to desire and pursue a life that remains loyal to God and that calls other people to do the same. Prophets knew God. They spent time with him. They understood his standards and what they wanted to happen. So everybody have, has heard some pastor or minister or internet minister or something like that, <clears throat> a social media influencer say, let me introduce you to so-and-so who is a prophetic voice to this generation. Right? As if it's this mystical thing. You can buy his book for $19.99 on Amazon and get the real word because he can't give it all to you here until you pay. But what does it mean to speak with a prophetic voice? Next line in your notes. To speak with a prophetic voice means to speak truth where truth needs to be told. To speak the way of righteousness and to represent God publicly a public display of faith. Speak the truth where truth needs to be told, to speak the way of righteousness, to represent God publicly. <clears throat> so that begs the question, if we're supposed to be prophets, what is a false prophet? Don't yell out a name. We could be here all day writing those down too. A false prophet speaks something contrary to God's word. Okay, let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. This is Old Testament, how they're dealing with prophets. Okay? <clears throat> Suppose there are prophets among you, or those who dream dreams about the future, and they promise you signs or miracles, and the predicted signs or miracles occur. Let's pause right there. They said it was going to happen. They had a dream. And they said it was going to happen, and it does happen. Today, what happens in those churches, and, and, and when that happens in the church? People Jericho march around the sanctuary, you know, yes, that really happened. Oh, my God, he's speaking to us, right? Right? Um, but then, here's what he says. If they then say, come, let us worship other gods, gods you've not known before, do not listen to them even if the sign and wonder happened. Do not listen to them. The Lord your God is testing you to see if you truly love him with all your heart and soul. He's trying to say, do you love the, the sensational act of the sign and wonder, or are you really looking for him? Serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands. Listen to his voice and cling to him. The false prophets or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death, for they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God who redeemed you from slavery and brought you out of the land of Egypt. Since they try to lead you astray from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to live, you must put them to death. In this way you will purge the evil from from among you. Now, most of us would look at the last part of that passage and go, ooh, harsh. Kill him? Like dead, dead? <clears throat> like, like dead? <laughs> Not figuratively, but literally, like dead? Um, but there's a greater principle here. That's how God told his people to deal with it back in early, early biblical history. But the next line of your notes shows what I want you to grab. This passage values the content of some, what someone teaches above their ability to produce a sign or wonder. <clears throat> this passage values the content of what someone teaches above their ability to produce a sign or wonder. There is a very famous guy um, we were on the road traveling with Frontline and was in a church in Orlando. And 
uh, they brought a prophet, young dude. They asked him, how did you get your ability to prophesy? And he said, I fasted for 40 days and 40 nights like Jesus, and God gave it to me. <laughs> Dead serious. Back then, I wish I would have chuckled and walked out, but I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> he was already skinny, so I didn't know, man. I was like, this, there ain't much left to this dude. He did 40 days, like nothing. So um, he would do that. He would stand people up and tell you what your middle name was or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, turned out that he was uh, meeting with a witch. A psychic medium, crystal balls and all of that. To get the ability to do this sign or wonder. But because we have been conditioned to look for the sign or wonder, instead of what someone says, people shout and scream and holler, talk about how great God is. Look at that. God's on that man. That's not a public display of, a get, of faith. That's a public display of a gift. Right. Presented as a gift of prophecy because people don't know what prophecy is. People didn't take the time to figure out what a prophet was or what their role was or what it was, and I didn't either. I sat there and was like, oh, my gosh. God, will you let me figure out what the last four digits of that credit card number is? <laughs> like, I can might be able to use that later. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like, like, like how, how, do, how do we get that? Those are, that's for like the super Christians. And what did that do? Did that elevate God in my eyes? No, it elevated a person. And if it's elevating a person and not elevating God, there's a massive problem. Because what is he telling you to look at? Me. Look what God gave to me. Look what gift I have. He's representing the body of Christ disproportionately. Looking like Popeye. <clears throat> Doesn't mean that the gift or the sign or the wonder didn't happen. It just meant, got to look at what they're saying. Are they going all Will Smith and Steve Harvey on you? All these gods are the same. You just call them different names. All these religions are 97% the same. It's just like these 3% little differences. False prophet. Anyone who speaks against what Almighty God says and lays out. False prophet. It's only one. You don't really need Jesus himself. You just need Christ consciousness. No. New Age shenanigans. You and I are divine. No, you are not. Jeremiah, the prophet that we just talked about, talks about how your heart is wildly corrupt. Who can knows how bad it is? You are not divine, my friend. You are made in the image of the divine with an ability to be adopted and saved and brought into eternity with the divine and have the divine nature cover you when you accept Jesus as your Savior. So that God sees his perfection instead of your sin. But you, you and me, we're not, we're not divine. Anybody who tries to mix those two things. Ah, the Bible's really archaic on its sexual stances. We've evolved as a culture. And no, I'm not just talking about the LGBTQIA plus thing. I'm also talking about the ones who are sexually immoral, period. Can't just pick one. We've evolved past this, Matt. We need to open up the doors and be tolerant. Um, I can't tolerate things that the Bible says I can't tolerate. Right. You're closed-minded. Yes. I've been transformed by the renewing of my mind. My mind has been renewed and closed to all this foolishness. You are the plan to be the spokesperson for God with your mouth and with your life. The only way you can do that, let me take you back to Children's Church. Hide it under a bushel. 
<laughs> I'm gonna let it shine. You gotta go public. A public display of your faith. Who takes a lamp or a candle and hides it? No one. They set it on a hill so everyone can see Jesus' words, not mine. You gotta go public. Take the gift that God gave you, which is nothing more than the vehicle of the message that should be burning in your heart, and take the, off, the, the role of the prophet to go out there and call people who used to be covenantially loyal to God back to him and those who never were to engage with him. That is your job. Let me give it to you in New Testament. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples. Do you see the correlation here? Do you see why Paul is telling you to be a prophet? Because that, what Jesus commanded his people to do, is the exact same thing. You are the spokesman, the spokesperson. You are the person who's carrying the message throughout the world. You are the plan of all these gifts that you have of leadership, of service. A lot of people in here, I can point at you and tell you what your gift is because I've seen it on display. You have used it in a God-honoring way to serve him, to serve other people in this community, to serve people outside of this community. We got people who have great wild ability who says, you have a need, I will do something that is lower than my ability to serve the need because I have a heart of love to serve people in the, that, are, that are my fellow believers before the world. I want to carry that message. You take that message, the prophetic voice that you have, and go out there and represent God, His voice, His word, His standard to the world. That is your task. And today, I did you a little dirty. Because now that you know, you're responsible. Amen. We could have came in here and talked about Christmas and how December 25th ain't really Jesus' birthday and all the and dealt with all the internet rumors. Christmas is a pagan holiday. It's not. It's not. The Christmas tree, it's a pagan. It's not. It's just not, none of it's none of it's real. We could have went easy. Mm-mm. Can't do it. Can't do it. Why? Because I had no idea after growing up in church and serving God most of my life that he told me to pursue the function and the role of being a prophet on top of everything else I was doing. So, three things prophet must do. Prophets must do. <clears throat> Last three lines in your notes. Number one, no. K-N-O-W. Know God, know his word, know his standard, know his character, know his son, know his spirit, know his plan. Know God. Are you covenantially loyal to him? Know his word. Do you ever crack that word open? Do you ever listen to the app on your way to work or school? Do you ever sit down and go, man, there's something in me that is longing for truth and crack open his word? Do you know what his standard is? It's in his word if you don't know his standard. Do you know his character? You spend time with him and you read about people who, who followed him and gave their life for him. You will know his standard. Do you know his son? He's the only way that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know his spirit? You have to know him and his son to be filled with his spirit that is guiding you as you make, as you navigate every single day. Do you know his plan? What is his plan? It is God's will that all should come to repentance. You are the spokesperson. It is his plan that you take the gospel to the world, teach people, disciple them, and then point them back to God all through the vehicle of your gift. Do you see how it all weaves together? You see how the brilliant tapestry of this design, God has woven this together to be this beautiful thing? It all connects. Number two, speak the truth in love with confident boldness and to those who are not covenantially loyal to God. Those who used to be and aren't anymore and those who never were. <clears throat> ever notice or ever think about why do people, especially in our culture, want to silence others? 
used to be like, oh, well, it's a free speech thing. It's an American thing. Mm -mm. Something far more sinister is at play. Not just the authoritarianism of the technocracy or the tyrants who run these social media platforms. No, 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 no. Because your job as a prophet is to speak the truth where it needs to be told. You got to open your mouth. Number three, go. <clears throat> go full PDF, public display of faith, not PDG, public display of your gift. <clears throat> um, two weeks ago, I told you that um, uh, there's probably been four or five years or four or five times in my life, in my 29 years of life, that, um, stop, stop laughing, stop laughing. Um, and there's been probably been four or five times since I really dedicate, rededicated my life to Christ at 18 and 48 now, so in the last 30 years, where God spoke to me in something that would be like a dream or a thought or a vision or something like that, right? Um, and one of those instances, I told you about two weeks ago, I'll tell you about one more of those instances this week. Had a uh, person I was close with in my life, still am close to the person, um, who just like all good God-fearing people had a desperate fear of snakes. Just like me. If you have any sense at all, you don't mess with snakes. If you have snakes as a pet, we, we, we can't be friends. I, I cannot come to your house. I can't do it. <clears throat> I can't do it, right? Like, don't, don't walk around with a python wrapped around your leg around the mall like happened as a kid. I can't do it, right? <clears throat> um, but um, there was a guy, he had a desperate fear of snakes. So I had a dream one night that this guy was sitting in a place with a bunch of people, and this big old huge snake crawled in the room. And me, like the God-honoring person I am, was terrified. Like, oi, what the heck? And I saw that thing slither over to him. He was sitting in this room of people with, in the front. He was sitting there, and I'm like, oh, this dude's going to flip. Like, I was waiting for him to like, crazy, go crazy in my dream. And he, um, the snake crawled right up to him, and he's sitting in a chair, so his feet are kind of in front of him. And that snake just begins to slowly weave its way in and out of its feet around the bottom part of his legs. He looks down, and I'm like, here it comes. He looks down, nods, and then goes back to just ignoring it, like paying attention. Like, And that thing curled up around him and laid down just like I don't want Charlie to do on me like a dog, right? Like he will lay on me and be like, get off me. But he wants to get comfortable, right? That snake got real comfortable. I sat there confused, like, this guy knows this is a bad thing. He's terrified of these things. He knows he always wants to get away from them, but this, he's left it there. He sat there for several uncomfortable minutes. And then he looked down, and he looked up. And he looked down, and he looked back up. And he looked down one more time and went, no more. He reached down and grabbed that thing by the back of its head, mouth open, bangs, it starts twirling around. And he stands up in front of this group of people and says, I'm not dealing with this no more. Mm. Snaps the neck of that thing and throws it on the ground. So I woke up and was like, oh, I got to change the hot sauce on my, on my tacos because this is not doing me good when I'm sleeping at night, right? Like this is, whoo. <clears throat> I got to go down to the mild and not the spicy one, right? And so um, next day, I happened to see him. I told Nina, and she's like, you going to tell him? And I'm like, I don't know. This is kind of odd. Next day, I happened to see him. He called me, and we went and did something. And so I said, hey, man, I kind of feel like I should tell you this. I dreamed about you last night. He's like, oh, yeah? What happened? So I told him the whole dream. 
He's like, a snake. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that's what I thought. You'd be freaking out in my dream. He's like, I'd be running. I'm like, I know, but you did it in the dream. You were just real comfortable with that thing. And he's like looking at me because we're sitting in the car. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, okay, man. Well, I apologize. Like, oof, man, I got that wrong. There's no way in the world that, you know, I'm so sorry. Thanks for letting me kind of display it here. I kind of felt like I should tell you, but obviously I got to change from ground beef to shredded or chicken on the next taco run I make or whatever, you know, lay off the burritos and walk back in, told Nina, I was like, yeah, he was like, bro, that's weird. I don't know what you're talking about. A week later is a knock at my door. Unexpected. He is at my door and says, hey man, can I talk to you? So yeah, he walked in the door with his wife and I said, what's going on? You guys good? He goes, yeah. He goes, about that dream. I was like, yeah. You didn't have to call your wife over here to insult me. Like, I get it, man. I was, it was wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was just something that happened. He goes, nah, you weren't wrong. He goes, I knew exactly what you were talking about, but I've been hiding the sin. I get home several hours before my wife and have some time by myself and engage in some things I shouldn't be doing. He goes, so when I told my wife about the dream, she's like, you better ask the Lord what that's about. He's like, I didn't have to. I already knew. He said, I've been real comfortable with something that I know I shouldn't be, that I should run from. In your dream, I was real comfortable with something that I knew I should naturally run from. I confessed to my wife what I was dealing with, and I had to come back here and tell you, can you help me? Sure, I don't know what to do, but we'll figure out something. And he snapped the neck of the addictive habit that was destroying him from the inside out. You're talking about a very small fraction of time over the 30 years of trying to present the gospel to people. We want to look at the dream and go, he's got an inside track. God talks to that one. No, 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 no. I, I, I rebuked that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> right? No 40 days of not eating for me. Right? But... What happened? What was the message he got? <clears throat> Repent. I'm not saying that God will never cause something like that to happen in your life. He may. But it will be the smallest portion of what the role of the prophet is supposed to be. I'm not saying that you that you're not going to see something and have a dream or God's going to put something on your heart to pray for and not prompt you to tell it to somebody. I'm not authorizing you to walk in here next week and address everyone as prophet or prophetess. <clears throat> That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am saying is we should not sensationalize those moments because those moments are not because I am a prophet. It's because God loved that person enough to say, hey man, that covenant, that standard, that loyalty you're supposed to have with me is not being met, and I see you. You need to get that right. Even in the moment that that word of knowledge or whatever you want to call it came, it was still for what? Repentance return to God, not so we could be like, I'm in a church where a guy talks to God. No. Foolishness. You are people who have a relationship with God, who trust Him, who are loyal to Him, and you have been tasked with the role 
and the gift of the burden to go deliver the message, to speak truth when it needs to be spoken, and be sure that you are putting your faith on full display and not promoting your gift. My guess is there's open doors of opportunity for you coming in the next year that are available now and will be more open during the holidays because this is a perfect time to go public with your faith.